Let's pray. Gracious God, you did pay it all. Jesus, out of obedience to you, paid the price for us. He willingly went to his own death so that we didn't have to spend eternity dead and separated from you. And God, for that, we give you thanks. We are in the process of studying letters to seven different churches in Revelation, God. And uh, it feels like heavy lifting. They're, uh, they're meant to be challenging. They're meant to be convicting. But they're also meant to be encouraging. And so, God, I just pray that you would be with us now, that we would be able to see and hear and discern what you're really saying and what it is there for us to hear. God, that we would be able to uh, apply it to our lives and to the life of our church. So we give this time to you and just pray, God, that it is to your very greatest glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So there's a couple of weekends in Minnesota. It's not the way, it's not quite this way in other parts of the country, I've learned. There's a couple of weekends we just really don't know what to expect come Sunday morning. Fishing opener and deer hunting opener. And so thank you for being here this morning. If you're watching us online, thank you for watching us online. I'm going to guess that no one is actually watching from a deer stand right now. But that's the first time in 12 years we've had our welcome from a deer stand. So we're, we're making progress. Uh, we, we are looking at these seven letters from the book of Revelation. Seven letters to seven churches. We're looking at the second letter. We're going to study these things because they are both encouraging and warning at the same time. Yes, they're 2,000 years old. Some of these cities don't even exist anymore. However, what they contain and the encouragement and the warning they contain are still every bit as appropriate to us as individual Christians and as a church as they were in the day that it was written. See, because in them we can find ourselves and we can find our church sometimes. We can see where we might be straying from our relationship with Jesus and we can find where maybe there are words of encouragement that we didn't expect to see coming. Ultimately, we're going to study them because we want you to be ready when Jesus returns. We know the whole book of Revelation is about the second coming of Jesus. It is a fact, it is a reality, it is a day and an event that will happen. And we want you to be ready and we as a church want to be ready for the day that Jesus returns. You heard me talk a while ago about some folks want me to be preaching all Revelation all the time or, you know, why can't we spend three months on it? My answer is very simply this. Without knowing Jesus, without having a personal relationship to Him, the book of Revelation means nothing. It doesn't mean any. To know all about the last days and to not know Jesus will be futile for you. In fact, it'll cause you in eternity to be forever separated from Him. And so we're going to study some of the book of Revelation because some of it is uh, very appropriate to us as a church. All of it is important. It's in the Bible. This part is important to us right now to understand as individual Christians and as a congregation. So there's this passage in the Old Testament book of Psalms I want to start with. Psalms, by the time that John had this vision and wrote what we now have as the, as the book of Revelation, Psalms as a book was about a thousand years old. Everyone who was a Jewish person in those thousand years knew the Psalms. Some of them were hymns, some of them they recited as poetry, but they knew them. They knew the very same Psalms that we do. They were no surprise. And so I'm going to use this passage to set the stage because it's important because it speaks to the problem that we hear about in the second letter to the second church. So if you're taking notes, it's Psalm 101, verse 5. It says, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. 
Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Every Jew in the world would have known that passage. It wasn't a hidden psalm. It wasn't an obscure psalm. Every Jew who had been alive for a thousand years would have known that passage. Even those Jews who remained in the tradition of their faith but didn't accept Jesus as their Savior, and those Jews who were traditional Jews who had been raised and brought up and, and their heritage was Jewish, but they accepted Jesus as their Messiah. All of them knew that passage. It becomes important in this book of Revelation as a backdrop to what happens in a moment. When we started this series, I told you that these 2,000-year-old letters spoke loudly to the Christian church of the day, but they also should speak loudly to us. And, and so let's just see how accurate this ancient passage still is. Remember, these letters contain warnings as well as encouragement. They're not just the good stuff. They're not just the, the fun, happy to hear, make us feel better stuff. There is a tremendous encouragement in this letter that comes at the end. But we don't get there until we get through some heavy lifting and some hard stuff to deal with. So the second letter to these churches is a, a letter to the church in Smyrna. And it sounds a little bit like the word smear to your ears. You've already got a jump on the problem they were experiencing. See, we're just coming to the end of this two-year election cycle. And on Tuesday, you get a chance to go to the polls and to vote. But that word Smyrna, we understand as smear. We're hearing an awful lot of smearing happening on, happening on the TV and uh, in newsprint these days. There's this combination of truth, uh, a little bit of uh, some empty promises, more than enough candidates smearing each other. We always say, wouldn't it be nice if they ran on the record of the good things they've done rather than to try to destroy the other person? That's why we get the phrase smear campaign. What's happening in Smyrna is there's a smear campaign going on. There's a group of Jews that are trying to undercut and undermine and destroy another group of Jews, the Jews who believe in Jesus. And what we're reminded here is that life 2,000 years later in the church and in the world really isn't any different. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Revelation 2, starting in verse 8. The letter to the church in Smyrna and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. <laughs> These letters are meant to be an encouragement. That sounds a lot more terrifying than it sounds encouraging. If you heard that you're a part of these churches and you heard these letters are coming out, they're on the way. We should be getting it any day. It's supposed to be awesome because it's going to encourage us in these tough times. And this letter comes and says, oh yeah, there's going to be tribulation along with your persecution and imprisonment. But don't worry because when you die, you're going to get a good thing. These early believers understood with that good thing they were going to get so profoundly and so clearly that the other part of it was okay with them. They maybe didn't like it, but they didn't run away from it. So Smyrna is an odd-sounding word to us, but to the first century church, they would have understood that word as bitter. It meant bitter in their language. The name comes from one of the city of Smyrna's chief exports, which was myrrh. You've heard about myrrh. 
It's that resin that grows uh, on a shrub and they take it and they process it and they make perfumes and oils and lotions out of it. And in the case of Jesus, even an embalming mixture that they put on dead bodies. Had a lot of uses. We hear about it often in Scripture. And as we read this package, it becomes clear, read this passage, excuse me, it becomes clear that this church in Smyrna was experiencing in real life exactly what its name said. It was living through bitterness and persecution. It was living its namesake. Today, Smyrna is no longer called that. It's called Izmir. It's uh, still a Turkish city. It's a center of trade and of commerce, and it's become a booming uh, vacation destination in that part of the world. At the time of John's vision, Smyrna wasn't entirely different. It was a wealthy trade center. People of the city weren't different than people most of the world over. They're proud of their city. They were proud of their wealth. They were proud of their extravagant social lives that their wealth afforded them because of the export of all of this myrrh that everybody wanted. Smyrna was the wealthiest and the most opulent of all of the seven cities that are addressed in this part of Revelation. It was known for a fierce social competitiveness among the people. Because everybody wanted to climb the social higher a little bit ladder, a little bit closer than the person next to you. Get up another rung or two beyond your neighbor. Have people looking at you in a better light than they're looking at them. The people wanted the best seat at the dinner table. They wanted the most recognition in the public square. They wanted to be first and they wanted to be best and they wanted to be most envied because they were a wealthy group of people and that's what they chased. So they enjoyed this economic prosperity. And for many of the people surrounding the church, that prosperity made them selfish and arrogant rather than grateful and generous. In short, money made them mean. And here's this small group of Christians settled in amongst all of that. When Jesus says in the opening, I'm the first and the last, and then he goes on, he says, I am the one who has the crown of life. He was reminding the people in that city who were chasing the glory of his place and of theirs and of ours. See, they wanted to be the first remembered and the last to be forgotten. They wanted to be the name on the tip of everyone's tongue. But Jesus is the first and the last. It's a good reminder for us Maybe when things are going well for us and our financial picture maybe feels a bit easier or more comfortable, it's God who's given us that prosperity. Not because we're entitled to it, not because anybody owes it to us. And yet, even today, some people want to rule their little part of the world with their own version of a crown. And yet Jesus reminds them the only crown worth chasing is the crown of life that God gives us through Him. And it starts getting really interesting. And challenging. In verse 9 it says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, it says. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews, but they're not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They're rich because they've accepted the gift of eternal life through Jesus. This small group of Jewish Christians, we would call them Messianic Jewish Christians today. They have accepted and received this inheritance of an eternity in heaven with God as a part of God's family. They're poor, or their poverty is there because even the people of their own heritage, the people that they share history with, the other Jews, look down on them for their beliefs. They were poor because they were the minority. They were the smallest group of people. And at every turn, the folks around them tried to run them down. 
Now the good news is that we're welcomed into that promise as well. See, but the world, it doesn't stop there. Satan wants to make a mess. This is why we talked about the full armor of God. Satan wants to make a mess of the goodness of God working within you and around you. Satan wants to make a mess of the goodness of God that you and I are a part of. That isn't what he wants to tolerate. Even with that promise, the believers in Smyrna are enduring slander from people who say that they're Jews just like them, but Jesus says that they're not. They're Jewish by birth. They claim the history. They even claim the religion. They feel entitled and self-righteous because they're a part of the wealthy business population. They claim the religion, but they have no faith. They have words, but they have no substance. It's like saying that you're a Christian and then just living for yourself. See, these folks are Jewish people by history and by birth, but they did not accept Jesus for who he was. Jesus, one of their own. A man who was born a Jew who came to save the Jews. Did a lot of reading about this, and there, there are some folks that say John is condemning every Jew on the planet in this statement, talking about the synagogue of, statement, uh, synagogue of Satan. No, he's not. He's not condemning all the Jewish people. John and Jesus were both Jewish. What he's doing is he's calling out those Jews who refused to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah and then who went further and were slandering the Jews who did. It's an interesting thing because in that day, if you were going to live in a Roman province, which Smyrna was, once a year, no matter what your religion was, you had to publicly bow and proclaim and profess Caesar to be Lord. These Christian Jews did not do that. They refused to. And so they had the Jews who were slandering them and they had the Romans who were slandering them because they refused to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. But to do that, you would have to deny Jesus as God's only Son, as our true Lord. The Jews that John is talking about were the ones who bowed to Caesar and proclaimed him to be Lord. The persecution got so bad, actually, in 154 A.D., that the Christian bishop of Smyrna, a guy named Polycarp, was martyred because he refused to bow to Caesar and to proclaim him Lord. It wasn't just that they made sure these folks were poor. It just wasn't enough for them to speak ill of them in the public uh, community centers. In fact, they actually began to murder them. So instead of proclaiming words of life in the name of Jesus, these Jews chose to attack Jesus by attacking the Jewish believers in Jesus. They were more concerned about being cool and being publicly accepted and continuing to make their money than they were about what it is that they said about people who they shared history with. And so they began to slander the believers. Still today, if you want to destroy somebody's character, slander is a great way to go about doing it because it's real hard to prove. Slander is something that keeps being used in the world 2,000 years after this was written. If you want to destroy or shake the foundation of the base of a church, what do you do? You begin to slander the people who go, the leaders of the church, the mission and the ministry. It's an ancient tool used by the enemy of God. And what he does is he convinces people to do his work. And so what does Jesus do about this group of people that has chosen to slander the believers? He calls them a synagogue of Satan. That's an incredibly harsh rebuke. Now, there's, a, there's a thing going on in our world where a lot of churches are choosing to rename themselves. Same church, new name, different packaging. 
They're rebranding is what they call it. But here's the one thing I know. While a name is important, it doesn't tell you everything about a church. If you are looking for a church, my advice is, if they choose to call themselves the synagogue of Satan, go the other way, keep looking. Jesus doesn't use this this, uh, phrase, this statement, this title lightly. A synagogue of Satan, he says. It's an interesting fact because apparently it kind of worked. If you go to Smyrna and if you go to Turkey today, less than 0.2%, 0.2% of the population of Turkey is Christian. That means two out of every thousand people, if you're lucky, believe in Jesus. And the thing is that Smyrna has almost no Christian population and the few who are there are still being challenged and persecuted for their faith in the midst of an overwhelming Muslim majority. The persecution continues. John's prophecy goes on and it says in verse 10, Do not fear. How many times does the Bible tell us not to fear? Be not afraid. Every time an angel shows up, what does the angel say? Be not afraid. How many times are we told to fear not? 365, one for every day of the year. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. This is this letter of encouragement. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Some of these letters, they, they encourage the people for the things that they're doing. Some of them, they, they uh, call them out for the things that they're doing. This one just says, this is what's going to happen, so be prepared. Can you imagine being a part of that church? You're already poor. They're not letting you even have a chance in the community. They're saying all kinds of horrible things about you. And you get this letter that you're waiting for. And suddenly you find out that what it says is that some of you are going to go to jail. And you're going to die. But see, the devil always wants us to believe that he's more powerful than he is. The devil wants us to think that he has power that he doesn't possess. He wants us to believe that he will win. But the truth is he's already lost. The devil convinces some people that they're doing God's work when they're only being a placeholder or a foot soldier for the enemy of God. But the Bible says when we endure persecution and slander and gossip and rumors and we stay true and faithful to God, it is God who will vindicate us. It is God who will show what people's hearts really look like. It is God who will give us the crown of life that can only come from Jesus. And there's the encouragement for them 2,000 years ago and for you and I. Now listen to the last words of this to the church. Verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is all of the churches now, right? It's written to one, but it's to all of them. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. In order to conquer, we have to stay faithful and true. We can't give up the goal of pursuing and living for Jesus. And if that's the case, we'll not be hurt by the second death. When we're faithful and stay true to God and are not caught up in the devil's schemes against God and the people of God's church, we'll be conquerors and we won't be hurt by the second death. What is that? What's the second death? We all know what it means to die on earth. And our life here, our, our time is over. And then the next chapter of our eternity begins. The, the place that we choose to go to on earth, whether that's heaven or hell, that chapter begins after the day of judgment. The second death is the day of judgment for those people who chose not to believe in Jesus. So there's all these Jews running around Smyrna who are, who are slandering 
God's people who are Jews who have chosen to accept Jesus. Jesus says, when you remain faithful, don't fear the second death. What's the second death? That's when God says to Jesus, do you know this one? And Jesus says, nope, I don't know who he is. I don't know who she is. And God invites us to go to the place of our choosing, which is eternal separation from him. That's the second death. There's no hope. There's no light. There's no joy. There's no peace. There's no hope. That's the second death. That's not for the people who put their faith in Jesus. See, they're going to heaven because they lived a life in the name of Jesus, but also for Jesus. These Jews, they may have, they may have claimed that they know Jesus, but they, they didn't follow him. And, and too many people, the Bible says, are going to think that they're going to heaven, but they're not actually going to go because of the way that we lived in this life. And the way that we're going to have found out that they lived is they lived for the name of Jesus, but they didn't live for Jesus. They judged people when judgment is for God alone. They, they persecuted and slandered others. They slandered people with their gossip. They're bitter and they're selfish, even though they're claiming to be living for Jesus. And that's the warning that's here. We don't want to be caught up in that crowd. James 3, the New Testament book of James says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. But here's what James says, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. According to James, the practice of slander is demonic. Straight from the devil, we might think it's a good way to shut somebody up or to slow them down, but James has a much stronger rebuke than that. People who engage in slandering other people are being led by demons, not by the Spirit of God. And the root of slander is a heart that has either gone away from God or just simply has never completely believed in Jesus. See, those who take it upon themselves to persecute other people, think of the world stage for a moment. The ones that choose to persecute others think that they have authority, but in reality, they're nothing more than bullies. They're bullies that have no power beyond what they can steal through fear and threats and intimidation. We see it, or actually we used to see it. It wasn't so many years ago that we would see what happened to Christians in other parts of the world as other religious zealots were trying to take over different areas of different countries. And Christians were being executed. And we heard about it and we saw it. For some reason, it's still happening but it doesn't show up on our news. Apparently, it doesn't make good news in America anymore. That's why today is the National Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, because if our news doesn't tell us, we don't think about it. And yet it's still going on. Two Christians every day dying for their faith. Data and I were talking this last week. How in the world do we pray for people in a church who live in a way that we can't even understand? Church is such a privilege. Church is, is such a given for us that we come up with all kinds of other things we'd rather do than go to church when there are people that are literally dying for the opportunity to be able to do what we're doing right now. How do we even begin to pray for them? How can we even begin to understand it? I don't know that we really can, and yet we see persecution in our country. Not really of Christians, at least not yet. But there is a way that some social activists and political activists have chosen to conduct themselves with name-calling and broad accusations where they call an entire group of people that they've come up with a name for something that, that is less, nothing less than persecuting them. 
We see the persecution in the way that groups, religious groups, even Christians, choose to treat and minimize specific types and groups of people when we're called to love, if not to agree with them, but not to persecute them. And yet we see that in our country all the time. We cannot agree with the ideas and the agendas of the world, but that doesn't mean that we're not called to still love the people that we might not agree with. What's been lost in America is our ability to disagree. Not everyone you meet is going to choose Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That doesn't mean that they're a bad person. It just means they're going to be spending a different place in eternity for you. And that's why we work so hard to reach the world with the good news of Jesus, because we don't want anyone to spend it apart. But that doesn't mean that we don't like them. It doesn't mean that we hate them. The message to the church in in Smyrna is the same as the message to every single Christian church in the world today, as well as to individual Christians and how we live our lives. Either we are an assembly of God's people, gathering in the temple of the Most High Living God and living for Him, or we're nothing more than the synagogue of Satan ourselves, living for ourselves with our own rules and wants is the only thing that really matters. We can seek to follow God or we can seek to follow our own will and desire and passions. And what we've got to understand is the church isn't ours. We get to be a part of the church, but it isn't ours. The church is the bride of Christ, which means that we are the bride of Christ. And we are called to care for, to maintain, and to grow in a healthy way the bride of Christ. To reach people, to invite them to become a part of the bride of Christ. The world and and some of the people in the world may claim to be religious, but in fact they've chosen to follow their own religion. And that's just another version of the synagogue of Satan. That doesn't mean we should have anything to do with it. When we rightly separate ourselves apart from the world for the sake of Jesus, the world's going to fight back. And if we know anything about the way that Satan wages war, he doesn't fight fair. So why is slander the weapon of choice in Smyrna? Because it's the oldest tool in Satan's toolkit. Slander is what Satan has always used in our world today and in the world for 2,000 years ago, because slander casts doubt. It makes you wonder about someone's real character. Do you really know who they are? No one has to say anything that's even kind of truthful. Slander casts doubt. And that's what Satan did with Adam and Eve, is just get them to doubt God a little bit. And he's still doing it today. However, God's got something really special to say if you've been the victim of slander or persecution. Matthew 5, starting at verse 10. Blessed. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Having people say that kind of stuff doesn't seem like a cause for celebration when it's about you. But when we're living for Jesus, God's got us. God's got it all under control. He's going to take care of them, but he's also going to take care of you. And really, the only thing that we control is the words that we speak. We can't control the words that other people speak about us. So this week, when we met as a staff team, I started challenging them to do something a little bit different. And a lot of you have heard of this. It's not going to be anything new. But we're challenging each other now to do this, the the thing called THINK, that acronym to the word THINK. Why? Because we're the sum of our thoughts. 
Our words and our actions, that's what makes up who we become to the world. Our thoughts lead to what we believe, what we believe leads to what we do. And so I want to challenge you to take the think challenge with us. We're going to talk about this for the next few Sundays as we continue through the book of Revelation. Very simple. You take the five letters of the word think and each letter means something. Before you speak, especially about someone else or a situation that can get hot, and we're in the political world, this happens all the time, stop and think. T, is it true? Do you know for a fact, personally, that what you're about to say about someone or something is true? Do you know for certain that it is factual? If you do not, stop right there and keep your mouth closed. H, is it helpful? Does it need to be said, or is it just going to make you feel better to blurt it out? If it isn't going to be helpful, stop right there and don't say it. I, is it inspiring? Will the hearers be better for it? Will the person or the group that you're talking about, will be, they be painted in a better light? Will the world be a better place for you saying what you're about to say? If not, close your mouth and don't say anything. And is it necessary? Will the conversation get along just fine without you adding whatever your thought might be? Is it necessary for the the building up and the edification of the person or the group that you're talking about, if it isn't, then just stop and don't say anything. K, is it kind? Would you want someone else to say the very same thing about you? If not, stop and just don't say anything. Does it build up the person? And will your words honor God and bring Him glory? If not, it might be best just to keep your mouth closed and smile. All we can do is control our own words. James 4.11 says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Now, I know I have this conversation all the time. I know some people like to insist that as Christians we're called to judge others. you got to be careful with that. James makes it pretty clear here. We're not called to judge others. We're called to judge sin. God judges people. And if you are one who's really going to insist on choosing your right to judge others, remember Matthew 7 tells us that you will be judged in the same way by God that you have chosen to judge people on earth. Psalm 34, 13 says, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Slander is deceit. You can't control what other people say, even when they say it about you, but you can control what you say about other people. Just like the believers who remain faithful in Smyrna, we're blessed when we're persecuted and when people speak evil against us because of Jesus. The Bible says we should rejoice and be glad. The Bible says that great is your reward in heaven. On earth in the moment, it doesn't feel very good. But God understands. Great is your reward in heaven. That's called the crown of life. That's what Revelation is talking about. The persecution and the slander of Christians, especially by others who call themselves Christians or call themselves religious people, is nothing new. The prophets were persecuted by the very people they were sent to bring salvation to. And they persecuted them. We're going to be persecuted. You are going to be persecuted when you stand for Jesus. And it might feel like everybody out there at your office or in your friend group or at school is standing against you. But here's the thing. God is standing for you. And if God is standing for you, who can be against you? For your battle will be won by God on your behalf and your vindication will be God's glory. And Jesus' crown of life, the Bible says, will be our reward in heaven. 
We need to realize right now, living here today, we are eternal creatures. Eternity isn't something we hope for down the road. Eternity is a promise that we know that we are going to enter into, but it begins now. What's our reward? It's the crown of life and an eternity in heaven with Jesus. The Bible would say, thanks be to God. But what do we say? Jesus, he was persecuted. That puts us in pretty good company. When Jesus was persecuted, know what he did? He stood silent before his accusers. He let God take care of it. Jesus and his disciples were lied to and lied about in the communities that they grew up in. People told horrible stories that weren't true about them. But God took care of them. They remained faithful. And I guess all I can say is, if it's good enough for them, it really ought to be good enough for you and I. Because just like with them, God promises us this crown waiting for us in eternity. When we stand for God, even though people want to stand against us. Let's pray. God slanders nothing new. It's wicked, it's brutal, it's unkind, it's hurtful, and it's designed to be. Nowhere, God, in your word, do you call us to slander. Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in history, do good people help get anything good done by slandering and persecuting other people. God, when Jesus stood silent before his accusers, that's a very small part of a verse that has a very large meaning for us. The enemy, your enemy, God, still uses slander and persecution and gossip and rumors and lies to attack you and to attack your people. But God, we know that that's a battle that you fought. You're going to win that one. What we can do is remain faithful to the end. God, help us to do that because it's not easy. Help us to stand for Jesus all the time in every place. Help us to love people. And rather than condemning and telling how wrong they are, God, help us to do what Jesus did. And that's simply to tell them about your kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, which is near. Because that's where we really want people to go. We want them to come to heaven with us. God, give us strength and give us courage in days of slander and persecution. In Jesus' name, amen. Next Sunday, we're going to study Pergamum. That's the church we're looking at, which is just kind of fun to say. Your challenge this week is to think. We're going to keep talking about it in the weeks ahead, but think. Is it true? Is it honest? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind?